Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good evening. I want to welcome you to this event at the Edinburgh Book Festival. I want to thank the organisers uh, who've done an enormous amount of work to get this together. I want to thank the sponsors, the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I want to thank in particular you, the audience, uh, who are joining us uh, now. Uh, and I want to introduce Franz uh, Timmermans, uh, who would have been in Edinburgh but for the virus, is joining us from near Brussels uh, and is a friend uh, of Edinburgh, Scotland and Britain. And in a set of months, five months, in which we've seen uh, depression, recession, isolation, in many cases desolation, I want this event to send out a, a message of hope. It's said you can survive for 40 days without food, eight days without water, eight minutes without air, but you can't survive for a second uh, without hope. And of course, hope dies, as it did this week uh, for people with refugee boats that capsize in the sea, it dies if a convoy can't get through to a besieged town. It dies when hospitals are treating sick patients without having doctors or medical uh, equipment. Uh, but it dies also uh, when people cannot prepare or contemplate or plan for the future. And hope comes alive when we can give people the vision of a future. And this, not, this evening, we want to talk about a vision of a recovery uh, with jobs, a vision uh, of uh, a green new deal for the world, and a vision of international cooperation. And there is no better person uh, to introduce uh, that uh, discussion uh, with the audience here this evening uh, than a friend of mine over many years, Franz Timmermans, vice president of the European Commission, but a leader, the leader indeed of the Green New Deal that is being proposed for Europe, uh, the leader on social justice with a policy for full employment uh, across Europe, uh, the leader also in advancing human rights at some personal cost to himself, uh, taking on the aggressive um, populist nationalism in some countries of Eastern Europe, uh, where in fact there have been more anti-immigrant parties than there are immigrants, and yet the leaders there have made that the issue, and uh, the European Union has got to take that seriously. And most of all, Franz Timmermans, a friend uh, of the um, Edinburgh Festival, but also uh, a friend of Britain, and some of you may have seen in his uh, letter to The Guardian, which was published as an article, what was called by The Guardian a love letter to Britain, his most eloquent statement of his personal and heartfelt regret at Britain leaving the European Union, saying that we must approach the future not with bitterness, but uh, to try to work in harmony and hoping and welcoming uh, uh, the fact that Europe may at some, some time be able to bring Britain back into that uh, community. And the very slogan that I used during the referendum is the slogan that he would use, Britain should be leading uh, and not leaving. And so where I want to start with Franz, uh, in, in welcoming you Franz, is, is where we are this evening, because it's again said that there's going to be a period of bitterness and rancor, that negotiations with Britain and Europe have broken down, uh, and that there may be no deal at the end of December. Now, I've always said that I think there will be a deal, uh, what do you feel? And of course, if there is no deal, what, what is the, the risk of there being rancor and a continuing set of hostilities over many years? Uh, Franz, uh, we're going to get to the Green New Deal in a minute, but I think we should start where we are with Britain and Europe at the moment. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your kind words, Gordon. And, and I do share with you um, worries about where we are. Uh, no progress whatsoever. 
Michel Barnier was very pessimistic uh, in his press conference uh, today. Um, we have little time to get all this done uh, before the end of the year. Um, but there is a willingness uh, on the European side uh, to find a way out of this. But we need to come to terms with issues such as a level playing field, such as what we do with fisheries. Um, if, if Britain wants access, uh, full access to the internal market, uh, full access to the services, we have to have some assurance that um, social protection, the protection of workers and, and other forms of social protection will not be undercut um, uh, afterwards. Um, so, so these are things we, we need to really talk about. And there is a, a strong willingness on the European side uh, to find a compromise, to do as little harm as possible. Because, um, you know, Brexit is doing harm to the UK, to the EU, to all of us. Uh, but I think we are under an obligation to do as little harm as possible, respecting the British vote, but at the same time, thinking about the future. Uh, and in our future, we have so many things in common. We have so many common challenges that we can only face face together. And, and if, if we fail in this negotiation, I, I do fear a long period of bitterness and a long period of, of, of you know, poking at each other instead of working uh, together. And that would be to uh, the detriment of both the United Kingdom and the European Union. We would all lose out on this. And I, I hope we can still avoid this before the end of the year. Is France the, the most likely agreement, a, a, a sort of partial compromise, really, that um, tariff-free trade, quarter-free trade, so you get free trade, but with the threat that if Britain breaks the level playing field, uh, there will be sanctions of some sort. So you could proceed into next year, but then there's always this threat hanging over the, the trade between uh, Britain and the mainland Europe. Is that the most likely outcome, do you think? It's possible. I just want you to, to understand the European perspective on this. If we have free access to the EU uh, common market um, and we start with the same position in terms of environmental protection, social protection, and then afterwards the, the, the UK would undercut that, would, would break down social protection or environmental protection and still claim full access without any control to the internal market, that would undermine uh, the social fabric of Europe and the environmental protection in Europe. And we, we can't allow that to happen. So we need to have an understanding that we will continue to have a level playing field also into the future. Yeah, I think what Britain will argue is that it's going to offer itself uh, up with equivalent legislation, but not the same legislation. L look, at, look at the um, possible ways that we could continue to cooperate. Take, take science uh, and innovation, the Horizon programme. Lots of non-European Union people are members and associate members of Horizon. So it's possible, isn't it, for Britain to have the science and technology link with Europe? And you, you would presumably support that. We Absolutely. get about a billion a year from Horizon for British science. Absolutely. Um, British science gets a lot out of Horizon, but Horizon also gets a lot out of British science. Of course. You know, Britain has some world-leading scientists in, in very, very important area, areas such as uh, artificial intelligence, etc. And it would be a loss to both sides if Britain would not continue to be part of the Horizon programme. And there's, I, I don't see any, any problem for Britain to participate. We have other countries like Norway and others who are not members of the EU, but still participate in these programmes. And can't we stay also in Erasmus? Because there's maybe about 200,000 students or, or young people who've done training and done uh, university qualifications. 
by traveling within Europe uh, and, and certainly from Britain to mainland Europe and a large number have come here, very successful. I mean, half the people who study abroad study under Erasmus, that could continue. Again, we're not members, uh, many people who are members of the European Union are, 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 are not members of the European Union are in Erasmus. So that's quite something that we could agree as well. Exactly. And, and you know, whatever your position is on the EU, uh, you will have to recognize that Erasmus has been a tremendous success and it has created a generation of Europeans who understand each other much better than before. And, you know, like, like the Edinburgh Festival is about people from different countries understanding each other. Erasmus is about that as well, creating um, a, a generation of Europeans who at least have spent half a year in another, in another member state or another European country. Thus, well, a, starting to understand the differences and learning more about themselves in the process. Well, it would be a terrible shame when we've got an issue at the moment uh, following the exam uh, fiasco in Britain where we need to create places for young people who are qualified who may not get places in universities and colleges. Erasmus is one part of that. So, so that's something that could be done to maintain cooperation. What about the European Investment Bank? The Edinburgh Royal Infirmary was uh, partly paid for by investment by the European Investment Bank. We can't be a member, but couldn't we have a joint venture between Britain and the European uh, Union Investment Bank? And that could also be a means by which we could continue relationships in the hope that things could get better later. I don't see why not. And, and by the way, the European Investment Bank is a real green bank. It's, it's made the strategic decision to only invest in areas that will help us become a sustainable society. And, and on this, in this area, Britain is also a leading nation and Britain should never forget that uh, its leadership is is well understood everywhere, and and it should be very careful not to not to uh, lose that position. So there can be cooperation, despite the fact that we're both sad that um, this departure is uh, is being negotiated. Uh, Britain's had a pretty troubled relationship sometimes with Europe. I, I remember meeting uh, Jacques Delors, who was president of the European Commission, and the first thing he said to me, and this was the 1980s, uh, uh, he said, "Mrs. Thatcher hates me. She hates me." And he said, she hates me for six reasons. And he went through them. She hates me because I'm French. She hates me because I'm a socialist. She hates me because I'm a European. She hates me because I'm a bureaucrat. She hates me because I'm a trade. I think there were maybe even more than six reasons. Uh, and uh, there, was a, there was no good relationship there. I remember also Harold Wilson, when he set out to join the, the European Union in the 1960s, he sent George Brown, who was no relation of mine, and, but a namesake, uh, because he was the most pro-European member of the cabinet with Roy Jenkins, and he sent him across to Europe to negotiate. Unfortunately, George Brown had a habit of drinking too much. So he arrived in Paris, and he met the austere Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, and started calling him Charlie, which didn't go down well. He then went to Brussels and got drunk in a pub and told people that the Belgians had failed to support the war effort because they'd been in pubs and brothels throughout the, the war. And then finally, and this is almost apocryphal, he went to Vienna and arrived in Vienna Town Hall where there was a massive reception, the great, you'll see it in the concerts from Vienna Town Hall, massive reception with music and everything else, uh, greeting him. And the music then started and he thought as the premier dignitary uh, at the uh, uh, Vienna Town Hall reception that he should be the person to lead off the dancing that was about to take place. So he sees someone across in purple goes across and says, would you like to dance? And he gets the answer, first of all, you're drunk. Secondly, this is not a waltz. This is the Austrian national anthem and you should be standing to attention. 
And thirdly, I'm the cardinal I am the cardinal archbishop of Vienna, and so he was put in his place. But these were some of our dealings with Europe in the early stages. But you have done a huge amount to build relationships with Europe. Could we be part of the Green New Deal? I really don't see why not. Uh, I really don't see why not, um, uh, because uh, many of the things going on in the restructuring of our economy across the continent, but also in the UK, um, are interlinked. If you look at the automotive industry, if you look at other industries, some of the same processes going on in the UK are going on everywhere in Europe. And we will have to find common solutions to these challenges. It's going to be very, very tough indeed in the next couple of years. We will see uh, especially in the next couple of months, high levels of unemployment. Uh, we will have to find common answers. We need the scale of Europe to find these answers, also in the global competition we're in right now. And, and I, I find it very difficult to imagine that Britain would not be part of that uh, movement, even not being in the EU. Um, you know, there's no reason for any of us, whether it's in, on the continent or in Britain, to, to sit uh, you know, sulk somewhere and, and not be part of this. That that would be a, doing a great disservice uh, to to our citizens. Um, uh, you know, we will need to create new jobs. We will need to reinvent many of the uh, industrial structures we have, and it's going to be a very painful process. But if we if we do it at the European scale, 500 million people, we can sort of lead the way also for other other uh, parts of the world. And and I'm really, you know, we really need to make sure we prepare well for the uh, Glasgow summit next year, uh, where we will decide on the measures we need to take uh, to become climate neutral by, by 2050. We need to make sure we convince the Chinese to be part of that. Hopefully after November, uh, there will be a, a reappraisal of that policy in the United States as well. And, and how, can, how can we imagine a Britain not being part of that? I just can't imagine it. Will non-EU countries be in associate membership with the Green New Deal? I mean, is Norway going to come in, or Canada, or other countries? You, you've certainly built up links between cities right across uh, Europe and across oh, the world. And, and absolutely. No, whenever I come with an initiative, whether it's on cities working together or on, on public transport, or on waste or on hydrogen, the first to immediately react are the Norwegians and they're not even part of the European Union. They want to be part of that movement. And, and why not share these experiences? Why not share the experiences of, of continental cities uh, in, in, in decarbonizing the public transport and changing the way they build with cities in the UK. It would be a wonderful experience uh, uh, to share what works uh, and to avoid what doesn't work. Uh, you know, we're going to have a huge movement introducing cycling as a, as a way of transport in many European cities. I would love for that to happen across the UK in collaboration with us. And, and, and there's no reason why uh, British cities could not be part of this. So, so what's the policy breakthrough that we're waiting for? I mean, you publish papers on the circular economy, on the food industry, on biodiversity. You've published papers on energy and technology and everything else. Uh, I mean, is the breakthrough a carbon tax? Is, is the breakthrough new requirements placed on, on companies like impact-weighted accounting? Is, is the breakthrough um, uh, the renewables industry being properly sponsored? I mean, it seems to me we're, we're still stalled. Despite Paris, we're still stalled. What's what's the breakthrough that, that you're looking for? Well, I think what we, we're going to see now is that um, uh, countries are going to write um, uh, plans for recovery after the COVID crisis. And if we, if we succeed in coordinating that so that the plans to recover are at the same time plans to transform our economies into sustainable economies, 
if we can avoid the trap of subsidizing the old economy, which is a, which is a trap that's wide open right now, if we can avoid that and we can coordinate the national plans and have some consistency in what we do, and also you know the 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 uh, funds available to the EU will be spent in the same direction, then I think we can have a, a breakthrough moment. And and I think the one of the sectors that will be leading in this is is, is going to be the energy sector, um, and then the automotive sector, the steel sector, the chemical sector. Um, um, a cement building environment, because one of the things we want to do immediately and very, very quickly now, because it leads to jobs, it leads to innovation, is a, a renovation wave so that we, we work together with member states and cities and regions to decarbonize uh, buildings, to help people install solar panels, to make sure we have credits across the European Union so that can be this can be financed. You empower uh, small and medium-sized enterprises to do this at a local level, but you also create um, um, a movement uh, that has very positive effects on employment, but also on, on people seeing that their energy bill will go down, that the value of their property will go up. And you can also do this in social housing in a way that you can scale up. We, we have the plans. We know what we need to, we, what we need to do. The one challenge will be the scale we need to achieve in doing this. So bring back better, which is what you're saying. Um, so sponsor those companies or those industries which are going to be green in a recovery. But does that not require obligations on companies in receipt of public money or in receipt of uh, furlough money or whatever it is, that they should be moving on, on a green, green agenda? And don't you then need to have some form of assessment? You need some sort of impact-weighted accounting so that the companies can report on whether they are genuinely making the environmental difference or just announcing that they are without any proper measurement of what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. There's been there's been a terrible amount of greenwashing in the last couple of years. And we need to be we need to create we need to create a baseline where we can really ascertain whether companies are doing are doing this sustainable uh, transformation, yes or no. Uh, so I couldn't agree more with you on that. Then we really need so to develop lead the way accounting standards. The reform yes, we need to do this. This is going to be part of what we do uh, in in assessing the national plans of our member states, and it's going to be part of the recovery plans uh, we will uh, develop. Having said that, there's already a strong movement already in the market. You know, if you look at at investors, uh, big investors. They know that if they don't do this, they will create stranded assets to a level that is uh, unsustainable. So already the market itself is moving into that direction. I had a, a very interesting conversation with Mark Carney on this recently. And he also sees this across the board, that also the financial world understands that we need to avoid creating huge levels of, of, of stranded assets by investing in uh, uh, assets that are not future-proof. Well, as someone said, the Stone Age didn't end because of lack of stone exactly and the oil age yeah. will not end because of lack of oil it's because we make a decision uh, that we're going to move into renewables now germany's probably got half of its um, electricity coming from renewables i mean uh, but still you've got a pretty big coal industry right across uh, eastern 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 europe what about a carbon tax i mean how could you get worldwide support for that because really it, it should be done in every major uh, economy what we see is that the the emissions trading system we have in europe is, is quite successful. Uh, and I do hope we can come to an understanding with the British government on this as well, because it really is very, uh, very successful. You see the Chinese are now developing 
comparable systems of, of, of pricing uh, their carbon and pricing. It's their carbon emissions. not about 25 uh, euros a ton or something. And some people say they should really be about 100. Well, you know, yeah, that, that's true. Uh, but um, leading into the COVID crisis, um, the, the price of carbon plummeted. It was, it was around 26 uh, euros a ton. It plummeted to, I think, 14 or something like that. But during the crisis, it went up again. And I think we're at about 30 uh, uh, euros a ton, which, which, given the situation we're in, is not, is not bad. Uh, and, and we will see the price uh, go up in the near future, especially if we include new sectors into this, if we limit the amount of free allowances, which, which I think are too, too many at this stage, then you will see the price go up. And especially, again, coming back to the issue of the elections in the United States in November, if, if the, uh, the federal level in the United States would do what states and cities are already doing in the US, then you can create a global movement that will take us into putting a price on carbon very, very quickly at a global scale. Now, what, what about jobs? Because, I mean, the big issue over the next few months is going to be unemployment and how we deal with it. And if a green recovery is going to mean uh, something to many people, it can't be displacing their jobs. It's got to be providing new jobs. Now, today, um, uh, we published as Our Scottish Future, which, I, which I'm involved in, our plan for cooperation between the Scottish administration and the UK administration to create jobs. Uh, you, you know, if there's a furlough, uh, if, if there's a lockdown in an area, you should be providing financial support where people cannot work. Youth unemployment, you need Scotland and Britain to work together. When it comes to the North Sea, now, which is another area where jobs can be created, you've got decommissioning and you've got renewables. And you've also got a North Sea grid that you're developing as part of the European Union. Again, could Britain on a pragmatic basis be part of that? Uh, how many jobs can come from that? Where are the big job creators? Because, uh, you know, uh, the debate in Britain between Scotland and the UK is like two ships in the night. They don't talk to each other. They're not working with each other. But surely to get things done, we've got to find people working together to create the maximum number of jobs in the next few months. How many can be created by green investment? Well, I think I, I mentioned the renovation wave. We, we really believe that that is going to create jobs very quickly. Uh, especially on, for small and medium-sized enterprises. But you mentioned the North Sea, and I think this is one of the most exciting uh, uh, possibilities we have. Um, offshore wind is, is a great success, but the grids aren't there yet. And it would be a tragedy if, because of Brexit, uh, there would not be an integrated approach to, towards the issue of the grid in the North Sea. You don't need all EU member states for that, but you need all the interested member states, from the Netherlands to Belgium to France to Germany to Denmark, to be part of this with the UK. And the UK needs to be an integral part of this for this to be successful. Now, just imagine you can create a, a much higher level of, of, of wind energy on the North Sea, which is highly possible with uh, the, the newest technologies. You can then produce huge amounts of hydrogen already there. And hydrogen is going to be the fuel of the future. Uh, very difficult to abate sectors such as the chemical sector or the steel sector, um, uh, very heavy transport, shipping, they will need hydrogen as a, as, a, as a fuel for the future. And you can produce it at very low cost if you have the right grid, if you have the right system in the North Sea. This is going to create quite a number of jobs in the UK and on the continent. And uh, I'm very optimistic that if we speed this up, if we, if we can get um, a huge amounts of hydrogen produced in uh, the next couple of years, it will immediately lead also to knock-on effect in other parts of the industry.
I saw Richard Leonard, the, the Labour leader, said today in Scotland that um, the green economy could create and, uh, more than 100,000 jobs in the next few years. So you're, you're talking about a million jobs in Britain if that was multiplied to Britain. Are you talking about that scale of jobs across Europe? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But you have also to be honest, many new jobs, but also all jobs will be lost. And, and I am not pessimistic about the level of unemployment unless we don't invest enough in reskilling and skilling people because the jobs of the future are not the same jobs uh, as the ones we have today and we have to put people in the in the position to be able to know, learn new skills to adapt the, to this new situation if we do this well and we need a good educational system for that we need funding for that if we do that well then nobody needs to become unemployed we need everyone you know simple demographics show that we need everyone in our economy in the future unless they don't have the skills to be able to function in that economy and that's on us that's on politicians if we fail there that will be a generational failure there should be a real guarantee right across europe to every single young person training education or work and we should mean it, and it should not be uh, low quality. We, we've got to invest in the future of, of, of young people with the skills that you're talking about for a completely different economy. But again, could that be something that, uh, you, I mean, youth unemployment is pretty high in some European countries. Yes, in, in some of our member states, youth unemployment is about 50% of young people. Um, uh, it's, it's totally unacceptable. You know, it's the one, one of the reasons why I admire this generation so much of young people is that they, you know, they, they have they have accepted the fact that we are in difficult times and they are struggling um, 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 to build a future for themselves. And we should be on their sides. And um, uh, you know, we're of a generation that was went to do the streets much more easily and and protesters much much more easily. Uh, but we we shouldn't uh, take their commitment as complacency or, or we shouldn't become complacent because their commitment is so strong and and there i really worry that we sometimes underestimate the levels of anxiety and then sometimes even desperation with our young generation if they don't see future you know i, I went to to university end of the 70s beginning of the 80s everyone of my generation ended up unemployed after that where you had the same problems in the uk in those years um, and it took us years and years to recover from that. We should remember that we're doing the same thing to our to our kids now, and we should be very very careful not to not to um, uh, you know not to leave anybody behind. Well, if we had international cooperation at the moment, I, I would be pressing not only for a growth target for all the major economies of the world, but for a commitment that we were going to move back and uh, move to in some cases full employment. Uh, and good employment and, and i think the world could come together with the resources that were necessary to do that and i think it's perfectly affordable if we make up our mind to do it and we did try this after 2009. my, my fear however uh, is that when i said you know what's the big breakthrough carbon tax um, uh, you know um, what do we do about um, renewables and everything else of course, I, 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 President Biden is possibly <laughs> a big breakthrough. I, I was at uh, Copenhagen in 2009, and it was absolutely remarkable what happened, because when I arrived in Copenhagen for the huge environmental conference, uh, it was absolute chaos. There was nearly 200 countries there. There was not even a proper agenda. There was no agreement on the, the conclusions and no way of making decisions other than 200 people speaking after each other, one after each other from the stage. So we got an executive together, a bit like the G20. And then what happened is that uh, 
Angela Merkel uh, generously said that the richest countries will half their carbon emissions by two, two, 2050. That was the, the 2030. That was the original uh, proposal. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, Barack Obama said that he was prepared uh, to do that. And then the Chinese ambassador, because the pr premier didn't turn up, he was worried about being cajoled into making a decision. The, the Chinese ambassador said that the rich countries had no right to make that um, uh, announcement because China would be rich by 2030 and it had to be included and it did not want to make that commitment. And uh, we, we watched as the Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, uh, was about to punch uh, and enter into a physical fight with the Chinese ambassador. And luckily we managed to avert that. And we just could not get an agreement because what still holds us back is this phrase, nationally determined commitments. National de so uh, no country can be bound. Uh, everybody in the end is doing what they want to do. They're forced to report and they're forced to give the information. But really, we do need uh, to move to a situation where countries agree we will definitely do this. Uh, and we need a level of international cooperation uh, post uh, Donald Trump, because America would now be part of it. Uh, that means that we do get a realistic assessment of what each country is really going to do uh, rather than uh, vague promises. And of course, the European Union has been in the lead. Uh, but the lesson of Copenhagen is that you really have got to work hard to get people together. Because I think we do have an opportunity, assuming that there will be um, uh, an outcome uh, leading to President Biden in the United States in November, uh, assuming that, uh, and assuming that we can continue to lead in Europe together with the UK on, on the goals we want to set for, for the Glasgow uh, summit, then I'm absolutely sure the Americans will be part of that. And if they are part of that, the Chinese will never want to be left behind on this. And they will also commit to this. Now, one of the things we need to do, which we haven't done uh, sufficiently, is to look at the needs of the poorest country uh, countries in the world, especially in Africa and in the in the Pacific. Uh, and there, we really, really need to make sure that we help them adapt to the new realities of climate change, and that we help them restructure their energy or even build an energy infrastructure which they don't have yet. So so I think um, for Glasgow to be a success, we also have to have a very, very strong commitment to developing countries uh, because, um, you know, whatever we do, if we don't help them, uh, especially now after the pandemic, um, there's no way they can do it on their own and they are committed to doing this. Um, uh, we could create huge successes there, uh, but for, for that to happen, we also have to commit to that and, and also commit the finances to them. And you've been working on that a lot, Gordon, and I, I, I commend you for that. But we will have to look also at what the IMF is doing, what the World Bank is doing, and we will have to look at, at the rights rich countries have in these organizations and see how we can share those assets with the poorest countries uh, in the world because they really, really need to catch up. And they can block any agreement in Glasgow if they feel left out, if they feel ignored. So in 2009, there was an agreement with uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama and me that there'd be a hundred billion fund for mitigation and adaptation. And you see flooding in Bangladesh, you see desertification in Africa, you see the problems that need this spending on mitigation and ad adaptation. Then in Paris, there was the same agreement, there'd be a hundred billion, but it hasn't materialized. Uh, see, what is the deliverable you're gonna get out of this COP26 when it meets in Glasgow? Because people will worry it's gonna be words again and not actually positive commitment to change things. Uh, well, I hope, you know, we, we've been putting a lot of time in working with the African Union and with individual uh, African countries on 
what are your adaptation and mitigation needs concretely? And what are your plans? And how can we support your plans? We're not going to write your plans. You have your own plans, but how can we uh, support them? And I've been putting a lot of effort into that because I know full well that if we don't succeed in convincing them that we're serious about this, uh, they're going to join uh, the Brazilians or the Saudis and others and, and block a, a, a possible agreement. But if, if we can show that there is a future for South Africa after coal, if we can show that we can electrify uh, uh, with uh, solar power and wind energy, countries like Ethiopia and others are willing to make uh, the right efforts. If we can show some successes there, then I'm sure we will be able to create a strong alliance with African countries that can help us bring uh, uh, together an agreement in Glasgow. So much uh, falls on the chairmanship of a conference like this uh, to get everybody together, to, to, to round people up, so to speak, to get China on board, to get America on board, to get the Africans on board. I mean, you you will have to play a key role in this uh, because you are the leader of the most advanced group of uh, thinkers on, on on climate change. Well, I I really count on on the British government for this as well. I mean, they they were leaders uh, in the EU on this, and I I, I also miss them for that reason. Um, um, and I'm sure they will want a success in in, in Glasgow themselves as well. Um, also, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, he's very strongly committed yes, to all yeah. of this and has a lot of knowledge and also a lot of willingness to invest in this. And we have some outstanding African leaders by now also who understand that for their future, um, uh, uh, bringing down emissions is extremely, extremely important. Is so much not going to depend on the way the world is moving generally by this, year, this time next year? I mean, whether it's President Trump or President Biden, what the relationship is between America and China, where Europe is now standing in relation to China and in relation to America. And I, I see there being four possible ways forward. You can either have the restoration of the, what was called the Washington Consensus, which is American telling people what to do in a sense, uh, but that's not even uh, supported now in Washington. You could have these America first, India first, China first, Russia first movements getting stronger, although I hope that's not the case. You can have just one world, two systems. You could be moving towards China and America locked in, in, in if you like, in uh, conflict against each other um, uh, without violence, but, but certainly conflict on a whole range of issues. Or you can have a model of responsible cooperation uh, where Europe can play a far bigger role in bringing America and China together on issues that matter while accepting that we're going to disagree with China on human rights and we're going to disagree with other countries if they uh, are um, proliferating nuclear weapons and all sorts of things. But we get agreements on certain issues where we can get agreements and one of them must be uh, climate change. Uh, do, do you think Europe is ready to play a bigger part as a global Europe? And, and it seemed to me in the last 10 years, Europe has looked inwards rather than outwards. And if we're going to get to a model of responsible cooperation, Europe's going to have to play a bigger role, hasn't it? It's, it has. Um, but but I, I, I'm very careful. Um, too many big words have been spoken about this, too many... Uh, ambitions uh, uh, that were not backed up with with rea by reality. So, so I think one needs to be a bit careful in saying this. But um, uh, let me let me turn this argument around. If we don't come, um, uh, if we don't find a new way of creating multilateralism, then we will be stuck in a bipolar world with Europe becoming completely irrelevant because we will be torn apart uh, between uh, the United States and China. Um, uh, we will not be able to, to defend our own interests. Um, we will not be able to 
help Africa uh, and to create this uh, symbiosis with Africa, I believe we, we, we need. Um, so it, it is um, in our essential interest that we recreate a new model of um, a multilateralism, which is not going to be the Washington consensus, it's not going to be uh, um, uh, anything we've seen before. But there is, I think, a lot of room for reinventing sensible international relations on the basis of, of interest without, without, um, without, um, without going into the zero-sum game we see now. Uh, the, the one thing that, that Trump has, has, has brought and that the Chinese seem to be copying is to reduce every relationship to, to a transactional relationship. You cannot have an international model based on peace and, and the rule of law and democracy if it is reduced to a purely transactional relationship. Um, and so values need to be a part of this. Uh, successful forms of society need to retain their appeal to other parts of the world. And I think Europe is in a good place for that. But we have to avoid this, 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 this new Cold War uh, risk um, between China and the United States. I don't believe uh, a, a Biden administration will be less tough on China because there are good reasons to be tough on China. Uh, but at the same time, I do believe they will be um, uh, open to work, working closely with us and others uh, and the UK and others uh, to create a momentum of multilateralism that we've not seen in the last three, four years. Yeah. And uh, before, before the, there's, there's dozens of questions come in, so I'm going to put them to you. And I'm uh, in the unusual position of being the person asking the questions. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a tough time. But uh, the lessons that we learn and the changes that we need after COVID-19, we, we've now got a COVID-19 generation of people growing up in the knowledge that we took enormous risks with health, as with climate change, as with many other things. Uh, what are you, what's the main lesson that you're learning from this? I mean, clearly, we've seen the limits of individualism. So when people have been isolated, they, they yearn for community, they yearn for being part of something bigger than just themselves. We've seen the limits of, um, if you like, free market fundamentalism, because people want uh, to see their government acting on their behalf. And whether it's the insurer of last resort, the provider of last resort, or simply the lender of last resort, uh, we've seen that happening. People are changing their view of what they see as risk as against uh, the security and, and probably want more security and want us to deal more uh, co cogently as governments with risk risk. Uh, and, and perhaps also um, there's, a, there's a new sense of individual fragility, human fragility as a result of uh, being the victim of a, of a virus that just spread from nowhere uh, right around the world and has now caused almost 20 million people to be affected and uh, and so many people deaths. I mean, what are the changes that you now see where the European Union and others can can, can lead uh, to make for a more sustainable and better world? You know, what, what do you take out of the, the crisis? I think everybody is learning something as a result of how we've responded and what we need to do. Well, you know, Gordon, it's, it's, if you look at, we're in the middle of an industrial revolution. We have a, 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 an existential crisis, which is the climate crisis. Uh, we have biodiversity loss uh, unprecedented in human history. Um, uh, risk losing one million species if we're not very careful. We have this pandemic uh, with huge uh, consequences. Um, we're talking about the future of humanity. We're not, but people sometimes say we need to save the planet. Well, the planet can take perfect care of itself. It doesn't need us. It's, it's been around before us and it will be around after us. We need to take care of humanity and humanity is in this together. And at the end of the day, Gordon, 
It's the old issue of redistribution. We have to look at the issue of redistribution anew in the present context. And, and I think it's mind boggling that, that the, the distribution of what we have collectively is so incredibly unfair within our nations, but also between our nations. And I think people don't stand for, people don't accept that anymore. If you, if you look at our taxation systems, if you look at uh, the, the, the part we have in society, if you look at uh, how many people are suffering because of COVID, it's always the poor who suffer more. It's always the people who can't go somewhere else. It's always the people who depend uh, on certain structures that suffer more now. So the and old... I agree with you, but can we get international action uh, to deal with tax havens? Can we get international actions of financial transaction tax? I couldn't get the Americans to agree that 10 years ago. We couldn't get agreement on taking action and isolating these tax havens, which are the root cause of so much of the inequality, because yes. you can send your money out of the country with impunity uh, and you lose all that money to the exchequer. But can we get international agreement on these things? Well, well I would say, you know, some, some European nations have tried on their own and, and, and honestly failed. Uh, yeah. But if you do this at the European scale, and you don't allow people on the, onto the European market if they don't play along, then you have a powerful tool. We need the scale of Europe uh, to act on this. And I think time has come to do this. And there is very, very strong popular support for this. Uh, well, we're, we're, in agreement, we're in agreement across Europe on a financial transaction tax. Yes. We would have raised billions from the, uh, as a form of self-insurance uh, against what a banking crisis could cause in the future. Uh, but the Americans wouldn't go along with it. Uh, well, you know, and, and, we had agreement to take action on tax havens, but again, a number of countries, uh, in this case, it was China, because it was operating its own tax haven in Macau, uh, they blocked agreement on that. <laughs> and, and so we've got to find a way of getting countries on board, because if one country acts, it, it's often not possible for the change to be big enough, uh, because they're simply outmaneuvered by other countries who take the benefit of being a free rider. But if, if, if societies that were not as developed as ours in the 19th century could take care of the excesses of the robber barons. We can certainly take care of the excesses of the financial system now and of the tech industry uh, that that is able to avoid any form of taxation. Whereas you know your shopkeeper around the corner is taxed uh, on everything they do. So Franz, I've got a number of questions. Uh, in fact, very many questions. One about things internal to Europe that I've just raised. But the main thing is how do you build trust in politics? That's what people are asking. How can you rebuild trust? Uh, when people feel that so many of the politics they see is self-serving. One question is how you react to racism and anti-Semitism in Hungary and Poland. And I think you've got a very strong record in speaking out against that. Uh, and that's probably the reason why you're not the president of the European Commission, because you were so adamant and, and lost the votes of some of Eastern, Eastern Europe. Is, is there anything you want to add on that? Because human rights has become a huge issue. in, in Well, in, in, I, I, I think w one of the reasons why these... these um, Parties who, who, who need fear, who need an enemy and always go looking for an enemy internally and externally, who, who sort of capture people's um, votes by creating an atmosphere of fear. Um, they could do that because other parties failed, especially on the social issues. Um, uh, too many people felt ignored and left behind and were then, were then um, seduced by the Pied Piper who came and, and found somebody to blame, whether it's the Jews or, or, or gay people or, or anyone. Uh, and, and so my, my reaction to that is, of course, you need to be strict with those countries and we're not strict enough. Member states are not willing to take each other to task on this. Uh, but apart from that, you need to take away the root causes. And many of the root causes are linked with a, 
um, lack of attention for social injustice in these societies. And I think I think it all starts with having sensible and long-term uh, social policies. And it starts with especially looking after the oldest people in our uh, society and the youngest people in our society. Willy Brandt once said, positive societal change is always a result of an alliance between grandfather, grandparents and grandchildren. I think this is still very, very true. So, so another question is, how strong do you feel the correlation is between, uh, and this is something of what we've been discussing, the root causes of climate change, of inequality, and the increase in the risk of pandemics. Do you see a connection between all these uh, three things? That's what I'm being asked by one or two people here. Absolutely, I, I think it's undeniable that um, we have no longer a healthy relationship with our natural environment. Um, and, and we need to rebalance that. As I said, um, our planet it can exist perfectly well without us. Uh, we, are, we are poisoning our own habitat at an incredible rate. And the proximity of human beings to wildlife, uh, quite literally, uh, is, uh, is, is one of the reasons of this, of this pandemic, I'm, I'm sure, uh, and, and other pandemics that might follow. So all these phenomena uh, boil down to the one question, are we able as human, as humanity, to recreate a sustainable balance with our natural environment? And, and, and this is the big question we need to answer. And it's, again, an issue of, of redistribution. And... Um... The other set of questions, uh, because I, I can only do justice to some of them, are about nationalism itself. Uh, and I think some people are, are obviously asking about nationalism in Eastern Europe and the effect that, that you've been talking about. Other people are asking, what is your response to, to nationalism in, in Scotland and, and Catalonia and other places in, 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 in Europe? And of course, the Scottish government, um, the SNP, uh, would want to uh, have independence for Scotland and apply for membership of the, the European uh, uh, Union. Uh, and the, you will continuously be asked what your response would be. Well, you know, I, for me, every human being needs to, needs to feel at home uh, somewhere. We all have a home. Um, um, and and uh, I can feel perfectly at home when when my when the the, the newspapers in in my home region write about me they mention Franz Timmermans and then they mention the hometown I'm from here. When the Dutch national newspapers write about me, they always refer to the province I'm from, which is Limburg. Uh, when European newspapers write about me, it's always the Dutchman Franz Timmermans. Uh, and in the US, that's when I do an interview. It's the European Franz Timmermans. It's all the same person. But why, why should we want to exclusively claim one of these elements and then create uh, animosity with all the other elements? You know, uh, the, the question I've been asked most of my political career is, are you Dutch or are you European? Give us a clear answer. Well, you're both. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a father, but I'm also a son. Uh, you know, you can't ask me to say to choose between being a father and a son. I'm both. And, and that's the issue I have with nationalism. It just denies people to have multiple reference points uh, and 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 it, it just it just excludes others um and and that's the fundamental difference between patriotism and nationalism you know a patriot is proud of where he's from and curious about other people a nationalist needs to hate other people because he fears them and i i think i think this is the age-old trap europeans always fall into 
thinking that nationalism could be a solution to anything. And it, it's not. It's never been. It's always led to conflict. It's always led to, to bloodshed. Now, having said all that, um, obviously, I have no, no position on, on what's going to happen in Scotland. And, and, and we'll, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to uh, see what happens. But, but the only thing I, I can say, looking at Europe, not at Scotland, is um, that if, if, if people in Scotland believe it's going to be easy, uh, it, if Scotland were to be an independent nation, to then immediately join the European Union, I'm not so sure about that, given the position of many member states on this. You need, you need an agreement of all member states for this, for this to happen. And, and some member states, uh, you mentioned Catalonia, some member states have very, very strong reservations vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, um, uh, certain forms of, of, of uh, strife for independence, etc. So, so I, I'd be, I, I, it's not up to me, it's entirely up to the Scottish people and, and to, to the UK uh, to look for this, uh, for, for, for a solution of, of this issue. But as far as, as I can see the developments in Europe, I would not be overly optimistic about the, the possibilities. We're going to come back to all these questions. We could pursue this for some minutes, but I'm going to take some others. What do you think about a universal basic income? Funnily enough, we debated this during the Labour government, and we concluded that the best way of helping the people who were the poorest and the most disadvantaged was through tax credits, was getting more money to the poorest. And our universal basic income was actually a free national health service and free education that was very available to all. Uh, have you got a particular view on a universal basic income? Well, the one thing I've learned uh, studying these things across Europe is that there is no one solution for, for the European Union as a whole. This is very much linked to, to the history of our member states and the history of social uh, structures developed within member states. Um, uh, and as you say, you know, if, if, I, if, if you look, at, for instance, at Scandinavian countries, even though they don't have a universal basic income, in fact, they do. If you if you look at all their their social uh, systems, and uh, but but other countries have have different different approaches uh, to this. What I what I would like to see across the board is uh, um, a legally binding uh, minimum income based on a certain percentage of average income. I think that would create. Uh, create uh, uh, more equality within within society, and it will also help us fight. Uh, the uh, dumping of labor in many of our member states, which is still happening. People, if, if you have a, 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 a um, minimal income uh, requirement, uh, minimal wage requirement, I should say, uh, uh, which is related to, to the average income, then you can protect people from being uh, from, from false uh, competition uh, of people who underscore who undermine uh, the level of wages. Yes, a minimum wage tax credits to boost it, child benefit, of course, universal in Britain. But the problem in Britain at the moment is child poverty was three million a year or two ago. It's now four million children in poverty. It's going to rise to five million. It's probably rising quickly there as a result of what's happening in this pandemic. And you really need measures, I think, directly to help these uh, families uh, out of out of poverty, and, and particularly if they're being asked to stay at home uh, because uh, there's a virus uh, and cannot work. You've got to give them financial support. You can't deny them. In the in the 1870s in Britain, when there was smallpox, the governments in the 1870s were giving people money uh, because they realised that they couldn't work because they were going to be infected or infectious. Uh, and uh, of course, if there's local lockdowns now, we're really going to have to help these poor families. And that's one thing that I think is pretty urgent in most countries in Europe. It's also good for the economy because, you know, support given to poor people uh, goes immediately, immediately into the economy. Tax relief for rich people is going into their bank accounts and it's not helping our economy at all.
I think I think you would back a jobs guarantee. This is this is what one of the questions yes. is asking, and 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 clearly, if there are new green jobs being created, but also a commitment that every young person will have work training or in education, uh, this can be delivered. And you know, we 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 had a new deal for jobs after 1997, and we got many many young people back to work. This can be done. It's not uh, too costly to do. It's really a whether you've got the political will to do it, isn't it? Absolutely, and we've got demographics. Demographics is a huge challenge, but here it's 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 on our side because we will need every young person in Europe in the future to fill the jobs that we will have. The only thing is they need to be skilled to do that, and we need to have a massive effort in helping people getting those skills and protecting them in the period where they need to acquire those skills so that they don't become poor because they're learning something new. You're getting an avalanche of questions now. How do we tackle tax havens? I was actually saying we've got to isolate them, sanction them. We've got to make them pariahs in the international community unless they change what they do. I agree. Uh, and, I fully and, agree. And they would, they would immediately have to change uh, the, the way they operated because they would not have any cooperation from any of the major countries. I agree. Uh, but, then, but then we also have to do our homework. We in the Netherlands, you in the UK, there are still yep. some glitches here and there. <laughs> Still, there's quite a few, and yes. uh, uh, we, we keep, we keep, we keep uh, uh, trying. Of course, uh, part of America is one of the biggest tax havens in the world at the moment as well, because uh, lots of Chinese money is going into America, because America will not tell the Chinese government who is who are the people who put their money into their country. And this tradition of secrecy is still one of the biggest problems that prevents dealing with tax havens. We've got to, we've got to deal with it. We've got, we've got other... Um, what mandate does uh, Barnier, uh, that's uh, uh, Monsieur Barnier, the, the negotiator, have to achieve the things we talked about at the beginning? Horizon, Erasmus, a Green Deal, uh, being in the European Investment Bank. Uh, are you pretty sure that he would be favourable to these things and would see that as one of the triumphs of negotiation? If you can get I, I know. But what Michel does is very carefully ascertain what the member states want. And he's he's done a brilliant job over the last couple of years in making sure that he has the full support of all member states with everything he does. And, and the issues we, we're looking at now, the problematic issues, have nothing to do with these programmes, are entirely linked to the level playing field, to issues such as fisheries, uh, to a number of other issues. Um, um, but on these programmes, I'm absolutely convinced that it's in the interest of everyone and every single member state to keep Britain as, as, as much aligned as possible with all these. Uh, and, and, and once again, the, uh, I think there is a, a deep understanding in most, if not all, member states that the last thing we need is a long-term acrimonious relationship uh, with our closest ally across the channel. That would be bad for everyone, and, and, and we need to avoid that at all costs. So we come to the last set of questions, and it is really back to where we were at the beginning, friends. How can we have hope when so many lives are crumbling? I, I, I remember reading about Gorbachev and, and Reagan trying to negotiate a nuclear uh, uh, weapons uh, reduction deal. And at one point, uh, uh, Gorbachev uh, uh, was asked by Reagan if an asteroid, and he was he was fascinated by Star Wars and all that. <laughs> Reagan, if an asteroid hit was about to hit us, would you, the Russians, come to help save us? And uh, Gorbachev said, "Of course." And Reagan said, "We too." So it, it is possible. And then, of course, they did do an arms deal. And now we've got the International Space Station, where Russian and American astronauts are up there and people don't talk about it but even despite all the difficulties there is cooperation how can we have hope when there are so many uh, lives crumbling what assurances can you give uh, this audience that uh, the european union and the work that you and your colleagues are doing can contribute to rebuilding hope because it has been 
uh, shattered over these last well, few well, years. Well, sometimes we need, we need, I mean, I mean, this is something many Brits do all the time, but I, I just want to say, sometimes we need to look back into our past. You know, my, my grandparents almost starved uh, in the in the great crisis in the 1930s, and then they got almost killed in the Second World War, and they had to rebuild everything. Um, my father was a, a soldier during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where, where we were on the brink of a nuclear a war. We've, I mean, our parents and grandparents have gone through so many of crises, and they always came out. And the the one thing that I that gives me hope is that the crises we're facing now can be fixed. We have the technology. There's nothing that needs to be invented. Uh, we we have potentially the financial means. We have the brains for this. It is all a matter of political will and political skill to make it happen. If we if we can get that together, and if we can get public support to stay strong for these measures, then I'm sure we can get there. I'm sure we can build a better future for our children and grandchildren. And that's what keeps me going from day to day. Well, I think this event, I've got uh, Karen who's uh, written in saying, uh, you've offered an inspirational conversation, stretching our minds and opening our hearts. So well well done there, Franz. And I think probably the agenda that people say, if by next year, and I hope you will come to Edinburgh and still be wearing the fringe uh, T-shirt, I mean, but. <laughs> you know, take it off for some time, uh, wearing it, uh, uh, when you come to Edinburgh, uh, could we say and hope that we have progress on the agenda on climate change and the creation of green jobs, progress on preventing nuclear proliferation, progress on dealing with uh, tax havens. Now, a lot of this will depend on what happens in America, obviously. Uh, progress uh, on dealing uh, with the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals and the tragedy of refugees and uh, so many people. We've now got 80 million uh, displaced people around run, run, run the world and, 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 and action on these things. And can we set an agenda that is capable of inspiring the rest of the world? I absolutely believe we can. And, and you know, venues like, like Edinburgh are so inspirational because you see people from all over the world coming together to get to know each other, to share ideas. And, and the, the, the one thing we need to, to do is share ideas. Critical thinking is being lost by nationalism and by, by this horrible um, political wave of, 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 of hatred and, and fear. But if we can get critical thinking going again, then I'm sure we can find solutions for even the most complicated problems. And we will see progress when we meet again in person. Uh, uh, next we'll year. meet again. And this is the case for the Edinburgh Book Festival. And at the bottom of the screen, if you want to contribute to the Book Festival, uh, there is a bookshop where you can buy lots of uh, books uh, on, online. Uh, and obviously, we, we thank all those people who have made this, uh, this event possible. Uh, I think uh, I'm uh, instructed to, to invite you to be in Edinburgh in person next year, Franz, and we can report I'll back be there. the things that have happened. Thank you for doing this. Thanks a lot, Have a good weekend. Uh, and let's both thank the audience for staying with us over these uh, uh, few minutes that we've had this discussion. Thank everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a great opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thanks Good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.